Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name's Taylor. I'll be your host today. And as always, is Tanner joining me. Uh, but first, before we bring Tanner in, we'll do a couple Patreon shoutouts. I want to say thank you to John and Nick for subscribing to the Patreon. Uh, additionally, I'd like to thank a different John for a generous donation on Kofi. Uh, yeah, we actually do have that. You may not have heard of it, but it's. Uh, is a platform that lets you do like one-time donations. And I realize that like not everyone wants yet another subscription. I get it. It's a pain. But if you do feel like you'd like to make a donation, um, you can do that on Kofi. It's it's kind of a one-time deal. And like always, any financial support is always appreciated, but never expected. In addition to that, we also want to thank John for his really fascinating email that he sent us. Uh, with that out of the way, I'll go ahead and bring in Tanner. Tanner, how you doing and what have you been up to? It's been a good week. A lot of stuff this uh, past week since we since we last recorded. Yeah, yeah, it has been. There's a lot going on. I guess the biggest thing for me is that yesterday was officially one year since I had a drink of alcohol. Nice. That, uh, that's a good achievement. And not something I set out to do. One day I just ran out and never went to get more <laughs> and you know after about two or three months i was like you know what i could keep doing this yeah so that was really cool yeah that's awesome i i do have to credit the podcast uh, i think as as one reason i was able to keep that up um, i feel like it's really important to have something to focus your mental energy on and doing this every week is a really good way to do that mm -hmm, for sure yeah it's great to have something to kind of focus on to take your mind off of uh wanting to do something like that um, aside from that, a lot of football. Uh, it was a good week, wild card weekend. Bengals won, Vikings lost. That was about as good uh, as the weekend could have gone <laughs> uh, from a football perspective. I've been reading or rereading the book We by Evgeny Zamyatin, uh, but I'm finally tackling it in Russian this okay. time. It's a short book. Uh, it's, I mean, you might even call it a, a novella. My project this year is to read uh, at least one book in its original language every month. So starting with this one, do you find that that like gives you any more insight into the book or any kind of different context at times or yeah, sometimes it's, it's fun to see how something is rendered in the native language. Like it's just fun to see how it's expressed, how things are translated, uh, especially in a book like we, which has a lot of technical it's, it's one of those kind of dystopian novels. It was mm -hmm. pretty influential on Orwell writing 1984. And it's fun to see how those, they're intended to seem strange to the the modern reader. It's fun to see how those are rendered in Russian. I actually first read that in college. Uh, I took a class on Soviet literature, and that was before I had any interest in studying the Russian language. Um, I actually read it again in grad school when Katie was still living in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And so we would pick a book and we would read like set parts of it so we could discuss it. Nice. So yeah, reading in Russian is definitely uh, it definitely occupies a mental space somewhere between work and leisure. It definitely <laughs> takes a lot more effort. But like with anything language related, you just have to, you know, at times keep pushing through it and realize that you're not going to get everything perfect. Right. So that you can make progress. Um, the last thing I'll mention is I went on I went back on uh, to talk with our Canadian friends at Born Under Punches. Uh, we continued our role playing story arc. We are investigating a stranded vessel in a sea of blood. 
and I am playing the role of Whaleback Willie, a grizzled but not super brave old sea captain. Nice. I uh, is that out yet? Is that listenable? I believe the video. Yeah, it's up on their their YouTube channel, so you can watch nice. that. There's the there's the kind of the pre segment, and then we get into the story segment in kind of the second half. Awesome. Um, a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. That's uh, I have not watched that yet, but I definitely intend on it. What have you been up to? Um, well, this weekend, we took a trip to the Lego store, um, posted a picture of the Titanic set that I saw there uh, for like a mere $650. That could be yours. We actually, Darcy ended up buying a Nintendo system that is Lego. It's like a model one. And mm-hmm. she started working on that. I'll definitely, it's really cool. Um, it like functions, like you can pop the cartridge in and out of it. It's pretty sweet. So once we're done or she's done, I, I shouldn't say we, I am not building it. We'll post a picture of that because it's, it's pretty cool. It's Legos have come a long way since we were kids. Like I remember just being happy to have a helicopter. My favorite was the uh, Fort Legorado, the, the <laughs> Western Fort. Yeah, there's so many cool sets now. There's actually a working lighthouse that I'm kind of interested in. So maybe at some point that could be a thing. You can write that off, I think, as a business expense. Yeah, we'll have to see how businessy that is. The other thing about going to the mall was it was just weird to be in a crowded mall again. Um, You keep hearing that like malls are dead. The Kenwood Mall in Cincinnati is not dead. It is flourishing. It was packed. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. It was interesting. Like this really the first time I've been to a super crowded mall since uh, the COVID stuff all happened. Um, So I don't know. It felt normal and weird at the same time, you know? But uh, it was fun. It was we had a good time down there and got to see some really cool stuff. That's cool. Uh, the other thing is I started reading In the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex by Nathaniel Philbrick. Hmm. I think we've had a few listeners recommend that to us, mm-hmm. and it definitely lives up to expectations. It's super gritty. I thought, like after reading that Donner Party book, I'd be good to go. This pushes even beyond that as far as just how desperate some of these situations are. At least in the Donner Party, like you're on land mm-hmm. and it, it just gets worse when you're stuck in a 25 foot whale boat. Philbrick's really good at conveying that kind of thing. I've read two of his. I've read his about the Mayflower mm-hmm. and I've read his called The Last Stand uh, on uh, Custer and the Little Bighorn. Nice. Um, he's really good at conveying the desperation. Of, of a certain event or, or situation. Yeah. He doesn't pull any punches. Like he, he just gives it to you the way that it, it happens. Um, I'm super interested in whaling now, like kind of that whole culture behind it and how much of a sport it almost was like when it was functioning the way it was supposed to. It's super interesting. And I mean, reading about like kind of the, the true account of what inspires Moby Dick. Yeah. You were born really about 200 years late to get into whaling. <laughs> I also learned that I am particularly suited for uh, survival at sea, being a fairly short, stout person. That is, uh, <laughs> that's what you want. You'll want that. You want that little layer of fat to protect you. Um, so yeah, it's super interesting. I'm not done with it yet, but I think that'll definitely be making an appearance at some point soon on the podcast. So today we are going to talk about the steamship Metropolis. So Metropolis actually began her life as the Stars and Stripes, such a patriotic name. She's purchased by the United States Navy for $55,000 on July 27th, 1861. So that's an interesting time in American history. Time we're going to need some ships. Um, She's built by Charles Mallory of Mystic, Connecticut. 
and she's actually built on speculation for C.S. Bushnell, who would then in turn sell the vessel to the U.S. Navy. Is that supposed to be specification? No, speculation. What does that mean? Like, it's an individual person building it without an... like. Oh, he's just building it to see if he can sell it. Uh-huh. Oh, he okay. can, he's reading the room and being like, hmm, the U.S. Navy might need more ships. I've never heard that before. Cool. Yeah, it's like like how a home builder will build like a spec house. They don't have a buyer lined up, but they know someone will buy it. Okay. It's the same concept. He's just a business guy basically trying to take advantage of a situation. Got your ships here. <laughs> Pretty much. Like, you know, it's one of those things like, oh, the Navy's going to need more of these. So she's then fitted for naval service at the New York Navy Yard, and she's commissioned there on September 19th, 1861. Her armament includes four 8-inch smoothbore guns and one 20-pound rifle. <laughs> I really read that as 48-inch smoothbore guns. <laughs> yeah, That's big smoothbore Jesus gun. Christ. Uh, so she's a wooden-hulled vessel. She's 198 feet long, 34-foot beam with a draft of 16 feet. So really not anything, you know, spectacular, but just, just kind of a ship. Uh, she had two square rigged masts along with a coal-fired engine that powered a single propeller. So we're kind of in that fun intermediary time right there where, you know, sail and, and steam are mixing. Mm-hmm. The, the steam isn't reliable enough to not have the sails, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the American Civil War in its infancy, the Stars and Stripes was placed into the Atlantic Blockade Squadron. Uh, so during that deployment, the Stars and Stripes carried a crew of 94 sailors and marines. During her patrol, she actually captures the Confederate schooner Charity that's carrying a load of contraband cotton. So you're seeing, you know, it's a blockade runner trying to beat the blockade. We'll dig more into this, but essentially the Confederacy needs to export this cotton to Europe to get money. We'll get deep into that on our Patreon bonus episode uh, for this month that we'll be recording right after this. So in January and February of 1862, the vessel takes part in the Burnside Expedition. And this is actually a part of the Civil War I don't know a ton about, despite it literally happening like where our family's from and where I was born. Uh, I guess because in the grand scheme of things, it's not like a major operation in the Civil War, but it's still really, honestly, at this point, I find this stuff more interesting than Gettysburg or something like that. I mean, obviously, the traditional narrative is that like Gettysburg changes the war and then like the war is just uh, going downhill for the Confederacy. And then like kind of the, you know, semi medium level knowledge is that actually Vicksburg was the thing Mm -hmm. that cracked open the Confederate nut, if you will. And so you kind of learn this narrative of like basically Grant and Sherman breaking through and then rolling up the South. And you really don't hear a lot about the fact that, you know, New Orleans fell to the Union pretty early. Mm -hmm. And then all these operations on the coast of North Carolina, even on the coast of Florida, it came up in some of my research on the blockade. You've got what's essentially a low-level micro-civil war happening. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, there's a lot of those cool peripheral moments in in this. Obviously, there's the big narrative that is just easier to discuss in, in most situations. But yeah, there's all these cool little side moments. Yeah, and for those that aren't American or don't know a lot about American history, the American Civil War ends in 1865, and what we're talking about takes place in 1862. So this is pretty early on in the war, and you're talking about taking and holding positions fairly deep in the South. Mm -hmm. So the Burnside Expedition, uh, the plan here, they're going to assault Roanoke Island, and the federal forces are going to capture the town of Newburn, North Carolina. As a result of this battle, the United States does gain control 
of Newburn, and then they turn their sights to more important objectives, Beaufort and Moorhead City, which are both defended by Fort Macon. And this is an area like we know very well. Um, we, we spent a lot of summers there. I could still take our grandfather's boat exactly from where we would leave from and sail it out through the inlet there right at Fort Macon. Like I, I can picture all of it. We talked about Fort Macon on a previous episode, and I don't yeah. remember which one. Probably the Atlas tanker okay. and the buildup at war- in World War II where a lot of these positions become you know, used again for defense. Uh, so this expedition would end with the surrender of Fort Macon on April 26, 1862, and that would lead to the capture of Beaufort, Moorhead City, and Washington, North Carolina. While supporting the Burnside expedition, the Stars and Stripes, along with other vessels, were able to destroy the Confederate blockade runner, Modern Greece. Um, This is actually while she was still ashore in Wilmington, North Carolina. So they're operating all up and down like the southern half of the North Carolina coast, essentially. Um, It's also cool how Wilmington becomes kind of the hub for blockade runners once the heat gets a little too hot around Charleston. Mm -hmm. A lot of those operations shift to Wilmington. I think the thing to remember with North Carolina, there's only two deep water ports in North Carolina, Wilmington and Moorhead. And that's why Moorhead becomes so important to capture that if you can limit the number of deep water ports, you know, you can take small blockade runners out of some of these smaller places like Washington or Plymouth, mm-hmm. but you're not going to move the amount of cargo that's necessary to generate the money that you need. Um, so after her participation in the expedition, she sent north for a refit. And she would ultimately spend the rest of her time in the Gulf of Mexico as part of the northern blockade of the Gulf of Mexico ports. Uh, At the close of the Civil War on May 26, 1865, uh, there's no longer a need for the U.S. Navy to maintain such a large force. As a result of this, Stars and Stripes is sold at a public auction. Thomas Watson and Sons of New York City pay about $30,000. And they have her converted to a mixed-use vessel that'll carry both passengers and cargo between New York and Havana, Cuba. It's also at this point that the vessel's name is changed to Metropolis. Uh, Metropolis would serve this route for five years before being sold in 1870 to a Boston-based company. She's quickly sold again in 1871 to M.H. Simpson, C.W. Copeland, and the Lunt Brothers. The new owners quickly set about to improve their new ship. The metropolis is lengthened in Newbury, Massachusetts, and her engines are improved. After this refit, she operates out of New York to various East Coast, Caribbean, and South American ports. During this time, the vessel is exceptionally productive. However, as we so often see, maintenance and repairs are neglected. I was going to comment on the name change. I don't know what went into that, but I think it's it's interesting thinking of possibilities from a rhetorical standpoint of the ship's name being changed from this patriotic and therefore kind of militant stars Mm -hmm. and stripes for the civil war and being changed to something that's more, it it sounds more open, more international, something Mm -hmm. you would name a a vessel engaged in trade rather than blockade. It would be interesting to know the thought process that went into that. If that's anything to do with it, or if there's something totally different. Yeah, that is really interesting. It is always interesting when you see ship's names change like that. Mm Mm-hmm. One such story of neglect occurred on December 2nd, 1877. Metropolis was chartered by a railroad to pick up a load of cotton in Wilmington, North Carolina, which like, that's kind of ironic that she's picking up cotton in Wilmington. Mm -hmm. Uh, The vessel departed New York City, but was only able to make it as far as Hampton Roads, Virginia, before being forced into port. 
Described as limping into port, the vessel had six inches of water in the engine room (laughs) and was suffering from a serious leak. Uh, She would be towed in and repaired, but the railroad would cancel the contract, citing the vessel's unseaworthiness. Probably a smart idea. Uh, The vessel then made its way to New York for additional repairs, and this included replacing the propeller shaft and stripping her and recalking the hull. These repairs were inspected by the assistant inspector by the name of Kraft, who then signed her certificate of inspection. So in theory, hey, she needed some maintenance. We did it. She's good to go. Kraft is a really fun name for someone who inspects how well things are made. And at that point, everything was good and the story's over, right? Mm-hmm. Except it wasn't. In January of 1878, Metropolis was contracted by the Pennsylvania Railroad to carry supplies and workers to Brazil for construction of the Madeira and Memore Railroad. Cargo for this trip would include 500 tons of iron railroad supplies. And in addition to that, she would carry 220 laborers who would sign three-year contracts to work. Was there anything like a Carfax report at this point? Would this company have known that this ship was previously like taken off of a contract because it was unseaworthy? Uh, uh, probably not, right? And even if they had, they claim that they've done all these repairs, right? Yeah. We fixed the problem. <laughs> it's like the Boeing 737 MAX. It's like, it's better now. Don't worry. Uh, Metropolis would depart Philadelphia in transit to Para, Brazil via St. Thomas. I find it interesting that uh, the author, Gary Gentile, noted the unique difficulty the ship had feeding its passengers, as it was not designed you know, to carry such a number of people. In the steerage kitchen, where meals were prepared for the laborers, there was a system of large wooden tanks connected via pipes to the ship's boilers. This allowed for the preparation of large quantities of meat, vegetables, and coffee in about 20 to 30 minutes. So are they making coffee in like a vat? Apparently, they're also just cooking a bunch of meat and vegetables in a vat, so I'm sure it was... Don't put the stew in the coffee vat. They're literally using the heat from the boilers to cook this stuff, too. They just mm. It's very utilitarian. It reminds me of that post, I think I saw it like a week or two ago, about someone cooking a piece of chicken in the, in the dishwasher. <laughs> I have seen a lot of people do like sous vide cooking in their dishwasher, and like, I just can't. I can't. <laughs> that's like you see the tiktoks of the people that cook full meals in their hotel room in their coffee pot and you're like please don't do that no one wants you to do that i always assumed that those were just shit posts and not something that people were doing some of those appear to be genuine <laughs> <laughs> uh so the metropolis would depart philadelphia at 9 a.m on january 29th 1878 in total she would carry 258 people she had 14 cabin class passengers That's the managers of the railroad that were going down there to supervise 220 laborers and a crew of 24. About an hour before midnight, the Metropolis made it to the Delaware breakwater and she discharged her pilot. Pilot in this case is like a harbor pilot or like a river pilot who's got just a special set of skills navigating particularly dangerous or busy areas. So they discharge her pilot and they enter the Atlantic Ocean. And so at this point, they're greeted with less than ideal weather. The vessel strained and pushed through the wind. You know, the wind's whipping its rigging. It's getting pushed around in the waves. And generally just unpleasant for everyone, but particularly 220 laborers who aren't used to being at sea that are eating uh, boiler stew or whatever it is. (laughs) Couldn't have been pretty. That night, Chief Engineer Joseph Lovell is alarmed to find four feet of water in the shaft alley where the propeller shaft like runs. That's not good. Four feet of water 
anywhere on your boat really isn't a good thing. No, that's most of the height of a person. <laughs> yeah, especially in like in the 1860s, right? Everyone's like five foot four. <laughs> uh, Lovell asked the ship's carpenter to come to his assistance upon seeing this. We went through the shaft alley, where the water was up beyond our waists, and we discovered the leak in the stern of the ship, coming through the dead wood in all parts of her. I immediately reported to the captain, telling him that we could never make our destination in that condition. Keep in mind the part where he talks about the dead wood. That'll, that's going to come back later. Yeah, not good to be sailing on a, on a ship that's rotting apart. Uh, so Captain J.H. Anchors acted swiftly upon seeing this, and he sets his course for the Virginia Capes of Cape Henry and Cape Charles. Uh, one additional note about the captain. My source says it's Anchors. A couple other sources say Auckers, and I do not have any way of knowing which one's real, but for our purposes, we're going to say it's Anchors. That's really frustrating because you could very easily see the type just getting flipped for the N and the U. And absolutely. <laughs> absolutely no idea which one is right. I I think it's better for the captain of a ship to be named Anchors. I think yes, I want it to be It's a more appropriate name. <laughs> uh, additionally, he ordered that all hands will pump. And the vessel should be lightened by dumping coal overboard. So, you know, he does the things he's supposed to do to try to alleviate the situation. Uh, so many of the passengers were alerted by all the commotion, and they quickly volunteered to pass coal. And you have to remember, these aren't normal passengers. These are laborers. They're used to working in rough conditions. Like, they see a problem, like, yeah, we can do this. We can help right. shovel coal. Lovell then stated, At midnight, the circulating pump broke down and the water poured in much faster than it could be pumped out. A few hours later, a heavy sea struck the vessel, carrying away her smokestack, boats, engine room bulkhead, and the doors to the forward saloon, letting in large quantities of water. Uh, so without the pump properly functioning, it becomes apparent that despite offloading nearly 50 tons of coal, they're fighting a losing battle. Like They cannot get water out as quickly as it's coming in, and Lovell goes on to say, The lights were all put out by the heavy seas. I secured a lantern from one of the passengers. My assistant engineers were all at their posts, but were in utter darkness. The first assistant engineer reported that the fire room was full of water, and that men were afraid to go down below. I told the men to come with me, for if we could keep steam up, we might save the ship. The crippled steamer is now in a truly dire situation. Um, she's helpless, and now in the grips of a furious snow squall. Life jackets are passed out to passengers while crewmen work to frantically plug what holes they can. Passengers who were not too shocked or seasick now immediately begin to form bucket brigades to try to do anything they can to get water off of this vessel. As the storm continued to worsen, on board the metropolis, the conditions become even worse. All but one lifeboat is destroyed by the pounding sea. Her upper works begin to break up and water begins to reach her boilers. As the sun began to rise, breakers were sighted ahead. So remember, he's trying to get to the coast. Like, this is like the one instance where you want to see breakers in front of your ship. Uh, at 6.45 on January 31st, Metropolis struck the beach head on. Due to all the water the ship had taken, she was presented with a new problem. She could not clear the offshore shoals that separated her from the shallow water near the beach. Quoting Lovell again. The sea broke over the decks of the ship with great violence, and many of those on board who'd rushed on deck were swept away. Their cries for help were agonizing, but all were powerless to help them. 
First mate Charles Dickman described the scene as such. After striking, the ship was washed with immense seas, which swept away completely the after part of the hurricane deck. And the people who'd clustered there were forced to take to the fore rigging and top gallant forecastle for greater safety. Occasionally, three or four would jump overboard and swim for the shore. One of the ladies, Mrs. Myers, wife of one of the foremen of laborers, was washed out of the pilot house, knocked senseless against the rail, and was drowned. Her husband standing by her at the time. A moment after, he jumped overboard and was drowned. So in the midst of this chaotic scene, the ship's bell just begins to continuously ring. You know, they want any sort of attention they can get at this point. Kind of by a stroke of luck, two men, a Mr. Jones and a Mr. Caps, happen to be walking down the beach. Upon hearing this, uh, the two men peer out into the mist. You know, they can hear it out in the breakers, but they can't see it. When suddenly it becomes, you know, it comes into focus. The men see the truly ghastly sight of a vessel in distress. They also see a large group of people crowded onto the bow of the vessel. Mr. Caps immediately makes his way to the home of Swepson Brock, who lives about a mile away. Mr. Brock promptly saddles his horse and makes his way to a life-saving station about five miles from his home. Inspector Merriman, the inspector of life-saving stations, described the immediate reaction to the disaster. Jones discovered several persons struggling in the water nearby, and one or two further up the beach among the debris of the wreck, already breaking up, although stranded but a little more than an hour. Jones at once engaged in hauling a person out of the surf, and thus brought out six or eight of them when Mr. Brock rode by on his way to the station. Yeah, so like immediately, you know, these two guys, they're just out for a stroll on Currituck Beach, and, you know, they hear something, they hear a ship in distress, they find it, and they act pretty quickly. And as you can see, you know, they know that the nearest life-saving station is not like a quick walk away. Like, they go and like, hey, this guy has a horse, let's get him to help us. Nice. Swepps and Brock, didn't he just win the championship with Georgia? Yeah, Swepson and Brock is an awesome name. If I have like a create a player character in something, like I'm using that one. Uh, so once alerted, the lifesaving crew jumped into action. While the crew made preparations and checked equipment, the station keeper, John Chapel, went with Brock to the accident site. Chapel carried little in the way of aid. However, he did bring a bag of stimulants, which he used to bring many of those who were rescued in the surf back to consciousness. You have to imagine those are the good, that, that's the good stuff. That's the good stimulants. Are we talking like ammonia tablets or like cocaine? It's 18, what, 78? It's probably cocaine, right? Like it has to be. <laughs> uh, so condition at the life-saving station were less than ideal for launching a rescue mission. Uh, the station was situated on a low bit of flat land and barely sat above the high tide mark. This meant that in stormy weather, the ground almost immediately became exceptionally soft and inundated with water, and was almost like quicksand in some places. This hindered the crew as they attempted to drag a cart containing nearly a thousand pounds of life-saving gear for nearly five miles to the accident scene. Keep in mind, they don't have horses. They are trying to drag this by hand. Yeah, they need that mud wizard from Germany. <laughs> yeah. um, adding to this is the brutal schedule that the life-saving crew had been keeping. Due to this weather, they had been making extra patrols, and in some cases, those were as long as a 32-mile round trip on foot. The crew would struggle for a mile and a half before a Mr. Ditton approached them and offered to hitch the cart to his horse. So if not for Mr. D Dutton, these guys would have had no hope of reaching the accident site. Mm -hmm. 
Finally, six hours after the initial grounding, the life-saving crew was able to finally get set up. Their first order of business is to use their mortar to fire a line to the vessel. So, you know, this would provide a link to the vessel to end the shore. Is this just a Lyle gun? Yeah, basically. Okay. Or like an actual mortar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's basically like a Lyle gun type situation. You're just trying to, you know, you have to have something that you can attach. Uh, The first shot is unsuccessful as it was blown off course by the strong winds. Chapel's second shot, however, was more successful. He compensated correctly for the wind and was able to land the line across the foretop sail yard arm. So up in the rigging, essentially, you know, he's, but they have a link now. The vessel's second mate climbed the rigging, retrieved the line and tied it off. So actually things are starting to look decent now, right? Like you've got that line connecting it. You can uh, attempt now to start maybe rescuing people. This stroke of luck, however, was short-lived. Survivors grouped together on the forward section of the vessel, waited on what seemed to be their impending rescue. However, as they waited, the vessel continued to break up. Suddenly, the rescue line snapped with a crack. The line had been drug over some metal cables, which frayed the rope, ultimately causing it to snap under the extreme forces of the waves. Captain Merriman would later state, This is the first instance in the history of the service that a shot line has parted after reaching a wreck. The line used was a new one, of Italian hemp, braided after the style of the patent sash cord at the Silver Lake Company. It's always free from turns, however coiled, and very rarely kinks when flying. More alarming, the crew did not have any more powder to attempt another shot. Brock and his horse immediately made their way back to the life-saving station to gather more powder, and upon returning, a third shot was fired. However, this shot also proved unsuccessful as the ball that carried the line separated and the line immediately fell into the sea. So you have to think like there's like a weight basically that you fire, like a ball, kind of like a musk, like a cannonball almost that's supposed to carry that line out there. Mm-hmm. And without that, you can't do what you need to do. Also, I just looked it up and this may not in fact have technically been a Lyle gun because this is... <laughs> This is right around the time that the Lyle gun is being developed. So it may have, in fact, been something called a Manby mortar. Okay. Which is like an earlier version. I I guess I always assumed the Lyle gun was like the revolutionary first way to do this. But I guess there were other other apparatuses before. Interesting. Uh, A fourth shot is attempted. However, it yields the same results. Basically, at this point, the mortar is dirty. There's sand. There's grime. It's not functional. Uh, It's at this point that the tragic reality sets in. There's nothing further that the life-saving crew could do except watch the scene play out as the vessel broke up. The life-saving crew was forced to basically go into recovery mode. They can only drag survivors from the surf as they attempt to save themselves. A passenger by the name of Charles Conley describes the scene as follows. At this time, the whole after part of the ship with mizzen mast was carried off and nearly all the hurricane deck had gone. The pilot house and captain's office were carried off. The bow commenced to separate and presently the whole forecastle almost entirely parted from the ship. Captain Chapel then dons a Merriman life-saving suit and attempts to reach the wreck via the line. So this is like a very early survival suit, hmm. but, you know, he hooks himself up in the suit and takes a line and he's he's going to attempt to reach the vessel and tie the line off 
Gentile writes in his Shipwrecks of North Carolina Dive Guide, Greatly fatigued by his march and labor, he was unable to stem the strong current and force his way beyond the breakers. At this point, desperation sets in on board the Metropolis. The final remaining lifeboat is launched, carrying only a few crew, which how often do we see that, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. getting desperate. People, it kind of goes into every man for himself. People are going to do what they try, like, you know, think they need to do. Quartermaster James Poland attempts to swim to shore three times with the line, only to be pulled back to the wreck by the powerful currents. Finally, he realizes that his only chance is to drop the line and swim and save himself. So again, he's trying to help everybody, but he realizes like if he does that, he's not going to make it. Chief Engineer Lovell, who is the man who encountered the four feet of water in the engine shaft or the propeller shaft, he makes it ashore using a cabin door as a raft. Oh, no. Here's the Titanic discourse. (laughs) Uh, Describing the frantic scene unfolding, Captain Merriman states, When the hapless people remaining on deck realized no further effort could be made for their rescue from the fast crumbling remains of the doomed metropolis, they accepted their last alternative, and singly, and sometimes in groups, plunged overboard, trusting their lives to the treacherous waves. The surf by this time was running high and the waters were laden with floating fragments of the wreck, amid which, sorely and in some cases fatally injured, drifting northward and driven by the rolling breakers shoreward, came the struggling, drowning people to be received in the welcome arms of their rescuers, who with precarious footholds strove in their work waist-deep in the inner breakers and undertow. As the situation on board the Metropolis became more desperate, the life-saving crew was continuing to get assistance from locals. Mr. Brock, whose horse had already proved critical in the response, was able to provide assistance with another animal. His large Newfoundland retriever dog, apparently inspired by both its natural inclinations (laughs) and observing the men in the surf, was able to drag a nearly drowned man to shore. Hmm. It's great seeing a dog doing what it's like bred to do, right? That's kind of cool. Yeah. Everyone on scene was occupied with contributing in some form. Able swimmers assisted the life-saving crew in the water. Others kept fires up on shore near the sand hills that line the area, and so others brought what little food and water was immediately available to the survivors. Chapel explained, The rescuers, without exception, were battered and bruised by the wreckage while extricating the drowning people from the masses of floating debris. Even Mr. Brock's horse, with no name, continued to work throughout the rest of the day. Captain Anchor, to his credit, remained on the vessel, attempting to exude some level of control until there was simply nothing left to stand on. He was seen in a rubber swimming or life-saving suit. However, he was struggling in the surf. Gary Gentile explains in his book, which I will summarize here, the captain is struggling to get on shore. He's wearing a life-saving suit, but it's still not helping him. It actually fills with water. Keeper Chapel, who's in charge of the life-saving station, along with a surf, surf, two surfmen by the name of Pigot and Gilligan, and actually accompanied by Mr. Brock, go into the water and rescue the captain. He's basically given up. He's exhausted, but they are able to drag him to shore alive. As evening took hold, uh, the beach is just kind of a grisly scene of debris and bodies. You know, so often we hear, like, this stretches for miles up and down the coast. You know, people are finding this stuff for days afterwards. In the immediate aftermath, the death toll is initially thought to be 98 before being revised down to 91 
and ultimately lowered to 85. Survivors were taken in by various local families who opened their homes to the poor victims. Temporary graves were dug for those who could be recovered, and the United States Revenue Marine Hospital Service would send doctors, nurses, and medical supplies via the steamer J.W. Herring. Another steamer, the Signet, was sent to collect survivors and return them to Philadelphia. Captain Anchors would make his way back to Norfolk via horse and buggy. So pretty quick, you know, there's some efforts to try to help these people and get them back home, essentially. By the next day, all that remained visible from Currituck Light were the ship's boilers and part of her engines. In Philadelphia, merchants and businessmen held a meeting in order to initiate a relief fund for families who had husbands and fathers who had died in the wreck. Despite the generosity of the locals, you know, there's always going to be some bad actors looking to exploit tragedy. Uh, we've kind of talked about this before with some of like the wreckers and people like that on the Outer Banks coast that are t- intentionally doing this. And in this case, it's not intentional, but some of them probably still see an opportunity. A coroner attempting to identify the dead stated, Up to this morning, I've taken up 50 bodies. The only things I've been able to recover on the bodies up to this time are a pocket knife and a bunch of keys on one, passbook and brass-handled knife on another, and a pair of spectacles. The bodies, without any exception, have been robbed of all things whereby I could possibly identify them. For his part, Captain Anchors is praised for his actions. The passengers of Metropolis spoke of his ability to keep calm and keep the survivors organized. Questions of the vessel's seaworthiness were immediately brought into focus. Captain Merriman recovered pieces of wreckage and found that newly added midship sections were strong. However, wood from the forward and aft sections were rotten as punk. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure in an 1878 connotation either. (laughs) Uh, A survey from the Board of Underwriters testified, From the appearance of the lower holds amidship, it was a very bad show to put 400 400 (laughs) tons of iron there. Because if she got to sea with that weight in her, she would be likely to spring and open the butts and scarves of the keel. A major development occurred when Eben Manson, a master carpenter, testified in court, In May 1871, I contracted with the Lunt Brothers of New York to cut open the steamer Stars and Stripes and lengthen her out 56 feet. After the steamer had been cut open, I noticed many rotten timbers in her bow and stern. I told George D. Lunt, who superintended the work, that the stern should be taken out, as it was decayed and not suitable to remain in her. Mr. Lunt objected and directed me to put in new pieces to cover up the rotten wood, which was done. New pieces were also put in the decayed timber across the air streak, so that the inspector could not detect the rotten wood underneath. Fifteen to twenty carpenters who were at work with me on the vessel will testify to the above facts if required to do so. Further investigation by the United States inspectors of hulls and boilers also revealed that the vessel was badly stowed and the leak was caused by the shifting of railroad ties. So, you know, the classic cargo shifting thing. We still see that today. I I think that testimony is so interesting from Manson in that it's testifying, you know, to not just negligence and overlooking what's needed, but to actively covering things up so that the inspector can't see it, which I feel like is the next step in like egregiousness. Right. Uh, So despite this evidence, solicitor Rayner of the treasury department did not jump to any conclusions. The loss of the vessel was undoubtedly caused 
by the leak at the rudder post, which was the result of imperfect repairs and the general unseaworthiness of the vessel. But it remains to be shown whether the owner of the vessel is guilty of knowledge of this fact. I would argue that even if you didn't (laughs) know, you should have. Upon investigation, Rayner found that Manson harbored ill feelings towards Lunt over money matters. Rayner concluded that an experienced inspector would have seen the cover-up and discredited Manson. Hmm. George Lunt would ultimately be exonerated of any blame. Some things never change. I feel like also this is kind of a battle of between can a master carpenter carpent something so masterfully that even a master inspector can't notice it? Master and inspector. The life-saving service was not so fortunate. They were criticized for their slow response and inefficiency. Unknown to the survivors who criticized the service were the following facts. The wreck came ashore 30 minutes after patrol had been in the area. The crew had no horses available to pull their nearly 1,000-pound cart. The weather had created sand conditions that were nearly impossible to operate in. And additionally, the weather at the scene included 60-mile-per-hour winds and exceptionally strong surf that would have been difficult for even the most rested and trained crews. Basically, it wasn't like a situation where the crews could have done more than they did. Like They used the resources they had, and the, the technology didn't exist to solve this problem at the time. It's a related or it's it's a similar situation a bit to what we talked about much more recently with Christmas Island and Mm -hmm. how you had the lifeboat service technically on the island, but they didn't have boats that could have functioned in that environment that they needed to. And it was basically just fortunate that there were other military assets in the area to to pick up survivors, Mm because otherwise you would have had a kind of a similar situation there. So despite this criticism it became clear that the crew acted to the best of its abilities, dragging as many survivors from the surf as possible, reviving some of those who were thought to be dead, and all of this done at great physical cost to themselves. Although the overall actions of the crew were validated, John Chappell was relieved of his position. The newspaper, the New York Maritime Register, wrote, The blame here should be attached to the false economy which prevents the establishment of additional stations on the more exposed part of the coast. It's pointed out that stations covering the area where the metropolis sank were 13 miles apart. This article also noted that in 1876, the superintendent of the Life Saving Services report stated, The distance between the stations averages 10 miles, which is too great to admit of their complete surveillance by the patrol. The number and serious character of the disasters which have occurred thereon clearly indicate the need of an additional number. In 1887, this was changed to the following. The distance is so great as to materially impair the chances of reaching vessels in time to effect rescue, and recommends that authority be given for establishing additional stations at intermediate points between those existing. So further validating these reports, actually, um, it's the... Incident that involves the USS Huron, which is only a two-year-old U.S. Navy gunboat that had run aground in almost the exact same position as the Metropolis about two months earlier. The wreck of the Huron would cost the lives of 95 sailors. It also served as a pretty big embarrassment for the U.S. Navy, as this isn't like a rotten old vessel. This is a ship that's barely two years old. Mm. So clearly 
in this area, there is a need for more life-saving stations and, and, you know, just more coverage. Ultimately, Congress would pass funding during the second session of 1878, which would provide funding for additional life-saving stations and improvements for existing ones. Today, the remains of the wreck lay about 100 yards into the surf, about three miles south of Currituck Beach Lighthouse. Many locals refer to this wreck as the Horsehead Wreck, and frequently sections of wood and metal are exposed due to wave action and the the soft shifting sands. And that information comes from a book uh, that I use that's from 1993. It's a dive guide. And actually, since that's been written, there's been kind of some updates and some new theories kind of about some of where this wreck is and what some of this wreckage is. Uh, In 2020, an article from the Outer Banks Voice interviewed Susan and Kim Heisman. That's a couple who were out walking the beach near Kerala, and they find some interesting debris on the beach. They're quoted as saying, they didn't look like anything that was natural in the ocean. They were at an odd angle and the materials were not natural from the beach. I gave it a yank to see if it would move and I realized it was firmly embedded. We kind of dug around with a clamshell of all things and then we got a toy shovel and cleared away more of the sand being very careful. When we uncovered it, we realized it wasn't just some random wood. This was a shipwreck. (laughs) So still quoting from that same Outer Banks Voice article, it is in the same area as the old Horsehead wreck that according to local lore was the metropolis. But at this point, the identity is unknown, said Nathan Henry, assistant state archaeologist underwater archaeology branch. It is in the right place for it to be part of the metropolis. The North Carolina Office of State Archaeology first became aware of this debris in 2010, but due to the shifting tides and sand, it quickly disappeared. Dr. Nathan Richards, Director of Marine Studies at East Carolina University, Go Pirates, explains that positively identifying the wreckage is still a long ways off, but possible with time and research. Because we're dealing with a 19th century vessel, we tend to have a really good historical Because we're dealing with a 19th century vessel, we tend to have really good historical records, and we tend to have very good marine insurance records. Marine insurance is critical because in this time period, they were dictating the rules, what the rules were for building ships. Those rules might say, a ship 300 tons might have frames of this dimension spaced out in this dimension. It must use iron fasteners. So I think that's really interesting that you're at a point where there's enough records that you can go back and look and know that, yeah, a vessel this size is going to have these characteristics. And if this doesn't match, then this isn't what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting that insurance is a thing that drives that. But insurance companies love to keep really detailed records. It's very useful. Insurance, and like we talked about with the bonus episode on the Richard A. Bingham, insurance and accounting records are so invaluable to knowing what's going on at these times because like no one takes better notes than Mm -hmm. than those groups of people yeah i think that's super interesting and it's interesting that a source written in 1993 is very adamant that it knows exactly you know where and what this is but as we so often see like as more research is done and more inquiry done things sometimes become less clear we saw this with the whalebacks where you can discover a wreck. There can be articles published saying, hey, this was discovered 
And then, you know, another dive reveals that, you know, it, they find the engine and they realize that this absolutely isn't the the ship that we thought it was. It's it's very interesting. And, you know, really, I think this whole story is interesting. The I guess the I would say the legacy of this is that it's it's unfortunate that it took two different tragedies in the same place to increase that funding for life-saving stations. But ultimately, as we see with like air crashes and things like that, these tragedies drive the innovation that's needed to improve safety. We could also draw, uh, draw to last week, we talked about the Ocean Ranger. And you're talking about the development of the, the needs that that highlighted with rescue. And we talked about similar things with Marine Electric. And if I remember correctly, Marine Electric sank during the time that the Royal Commission was was coming to its conclusions about Ocean Ranger um, and obviously seeing some of the same challenges of, of mm-hmm. not having these life-saving capabilities in place. So yeah, it's just kind of these compounding tragedies and eventually something's done about them. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember like these life-saving stations are essentially like the rescue helicopters of their time. It's the best chance you have if you're in that situation is to have one of these stations nearby and able to respond. So I think that is that is really interesting. Um, I always like doing stories about the North Carolina coast. So I, I think they're always a little more interesting personally. Um, I would say like the North Carolina coast and the Great Lakes are kind of like the home areas um, for me. So yeah, anytime I can do one of those, you know, it, it's really interesting to research and provide a little more local context and stuff too. So. I don't know. I had a really fun time doing this one. I lo- this is like one of my favorite time periods of history to also do where it's old, but not so old that there's not a lot of good records. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I found it really enjoyable to do this one. So hopefully you guys have enjoyed it. And um, I don't know. I don't have anything else to add to you on this one. I think that's it. I learned a lot in this one. I didn't know anything about the story and it was cool, um, especially with reading so much about the Union blockade and seeing all the ships deployed in that. It's kind of cool to see what did some of these ships get up to after mm-hmm. they were no longer needed for the war. Yeah. Well, awesome. Uh, hopefully everybody has a great week and we're going to go record another uh, bonus episode now. Talk to you guys later.